Hi, this is Brian Dolan with the law firm Pepper Hamilton. Pepper partner Greg Novak hosted a webinar for West Legal Ed Center that dealt with issues affecting private funds and their managers. Mr. Novak was joined by Pepper attorney Cassie Just, and together they provided a review of the summer blockbusters affecting the investment management and brokerage industries. If you're interested in the PowerPoint presentation that accompanied this webinar, please visit Pepper's Pod Center which sits within Pepper's Insight Center at www.pepperlaw.com, where this podcast is posted. Well, thank you very much. Um, good afternoon, all. This is Greg Novak uh, coming to you live from beautiful downtown, midtown, rather, uh, New York City. I'm here with my associate, Cassie uh, Justy, and we're going to talk about uh, recent developments in the investment management space, in particular affecting uh, open-end private funds, also known as hedge funds, and what's happening now. Uh, we have not had an investment management roundtable since June of this past year. We always take the summer off, and we're very happy that you've rejoined us for our program this fall. So without further ado, if you go to the first slide in the presentation materials, give you a quick overview of the topics that we're going to discuss today, and certainly we would like to make this interactive, so if you have any questions, please feel free to send them through and we will get to them uh, as the opportunity presents itself. There have been a lot of developments this past summer affecting hedge funds, private funds, and the investment management space. And there are a few that I just wanted to touch on briefly before we get to the prepared materials. The first one, of course, was the delay of the um, Department of Labor's fiduciary rule. This is a very, very important rule for broker-dealers and others dealing with the retirement planning space, but because it has been delayed and there is so much, uh, for lack of a better term, fake news out there about what it does and doesn't do, we decided not to cover it in depth in this particular program. However, we have written about it extensively over the last several months, and if you have any particular questions, feel free to reach out directly and be happy to address those. But the rule was delayed, and we are waiting for implementing regulations. The important thing to keep in mind with regard to the fiduciary rule is that it was designed to level the playing field, primarily with respect to broker-dealers who receive fees for certain services uh, that they render, and making sure that those fees do not provide inappropriate incentives for those brokers to recommend high fee-paying products as opposed to products that are, quote-unquote, in the best interest of the investor. For those of you who have been somewhat confused about the reach of the fiduciary rule, what it says and what it doesn't say, I would like to recommend a uh, lengthy court opinion that was authored by a judge down in Texas, of all places, that lays out the foundation for the fiduciary rule and dismantles almost all of the arguments that were made against it in a very, very scholarly fashion. Uh, after having read that opinion, it makes it clear that a lot of the misinformation that is being spread about the fiduciary rule was designed for a particular political purpose as opposed to an objective. But just from a pure legal point of view, understanding what was proposed, it's an excellent example of legal scholarship, and I recommend it to you. Uh, however, until we get further guidance from the Department of Labor, uh, we're going to just watch that one and make sure that we don't uh, fall into the trap 
of not understanding how that rule works and its implications for the investment management space. Okay, to the agenda. We have a new form ADV. The form ADV uh, has been modified first, more, most recently, with respect to the changes made by Dodd-Frank, and then these proposed amendments, which are effective in a week. They're effective for filings that are made after October 1 of 2017. So that means for a firm making its annual updating amendment, and if they're on a uh, September 30 year-end, they're making this filing immediately on the new form. If they are a December 31 year-end and their updating amendment is due in the first quarter of 2018, they will have to make their new filing, their updating amendment, on the new form. Now, many of you are going to say, <clears throat> what's the big deal? The SEC and other regulatory agencies change forms all the time. And in many respects, the changes that were made to this new form ADV are simply housekeeping-type changes. However, there are a few that I believe deserve a little bit deeper dive. So uh, I'm going to turn to my associate, Cassie, to walk us through what actually was changed uh, in form ADV. Sure. So um, like Greg said, Greg said, there were a number of changes in the new form ADV. We're going to focus on three in particular that are the more significant of the changes. Um, the first being item 5K of form ADV, the separately managed accounts portion. So the new form has added a series of questions about um, SMEs, and it covers a, a variety of topics. So it currently asks what uh, or whether an advisor engages in borrowing transactions on behalf of their separately managed accounts. And the staff clarified that advisors are not required to report client borrowing um, if they're not aware of that. But um, the staff was very clear that an advisor can't indirectly arrange for borrowing transactions for SMEs in order to circumvent the obligation to report those transactions. Okay, so let me interject here. Uh, recently, I was involved with a client who, and we were dealing with setting up certain types of accounts for the client. And I was working with a wirehouse broker, my client, another broker dealer, and an investment advisor. And it was astonishing to me that even though all of us used the word account, it meant different things to every one of those constituencies. So let's, first of all, make sure we understand what we're talking about in terms of a separately managed account. These are those accounts where the manager does not have direct custody, doesn't have physical custody. They're held by a custodian. And the manager, through either an investment management agreement or through a power of attorney, has the authority to direct that custodian to make trades, to either buy or sell securities or to hold securities. And so clearly the manager is a fiduciary with respect to that separately managed account. Oftentimes these are sometimes referred to as funds of one. They're sometimes referred to as institutional accounts. They're sometimes referred to as fiduciary accounts, sometimes as trust accounts. And we need to be very careful that we understand what the SEC is getting at. The paradigm they're focusing on is that account where there is an investment management agreement author, authorizing the investment manager as a fiduciary to manage the assets in that account in accordance with either the account objectives or with discretion, however 
the contract has been set up. So one of the other points, in addition to whether the advisor engages in borrowing transactions on behalf of its SMEs, is whether the advisor engages in derivative transactions on behalf of its SMEs. So let's again ask, why is the SEC concerned about borrowing and derivatives? It goes back to Dodd-Frank and the focus on systemic risk. Remember, if an advisor has funds and other entities that it manages and it recommends that those entities engage in borrowing transactions, those types of private funds or registered funds, the borrowing is already being reported on Form PF or some of the other reports that the SEC has required following Dodd-Frank. SMAs, however, because they are not under the direct custody of the advisor, were not caught up in that reporting regimen. So take the classic paradigm. You'd have an institutional account where the manager says, in order to get a better return, it makes sense for you to lever up the portfolio, to borrow money from a bank or a brokerage firm on margin, et cetera, in order to uh, benefit from the spread. If the asset values go up faster than the accrual of interest, then obviously the client does better in its account. Of course, the problem is, to the extent that there is borrowing that's not reported through the advisor's other relationships, but rather is on the balance sheet of these uh, pension plans or institutional investors, it would never be captured, even though it potentially poses systemic risk <clears throat> to the system. And it's the same with uh, derivative accounts, like swap transactions, because swaps, in effect, have an embedded borrowing that uh, is reflected in the cost of funds that are paid by this, one of the swap participants to the swap counterparty. And uh, if the SEC is attempting to understand what systemic risk there is in the system, it has to know where there is either derivative risk or borrowing risk, and this plugs that gap. Right. So that's exactly what this change to Form ADB does. The Schedule D provides a place for advisors to report borrowing and derivatives on behalf of these SMAs. Um, one of the questions that was addressed by the staff was whether an advisor, because there's a question in Schedule D that asks about the amount of notional exposure. If there is none, then, you know, there's different categories where the advisor can select exactly how much notional exposure they have. There's no need to select less than 10% for that. They can simply leave that blank on Schedule D. Okay. What about the other um, Form ADD amendments, such as the ones dealing with <clears throat> uh, state issues for mid-sized advisors? There's always been some confusion as to whether or not a firm that does not hit the minimum requirements to register with a state under the mid-sized advisor rules, whether it can ignore filing altogether. The new Form ADV, especially the FAQs, makes that clear. Cassie, what do they do? So the... The staff has clarified that for mid-sized advisors that may be, so for instance, if a state requires a certain minimum AUM and a certain minimum number of clients and an advisor fits one but does not fit the other, meaning they are not eligible for state registration, they would be required to register with the SEC. Um, now, when that advisor is doing its annual amendment, it can then assess whether it fits under the requirements for state registration, and it can make the decision to switch to solely state registration if it's okay. eligible. So let's make sure we're absolutely clear here. Mid-sized advisors was uh, a new category created 
as part of Dodd-Frank, and it's for advisors that have AUM between $25 million and $100 million. Correct. And uh, we're not talking about a private fund manager. That's under a separate exception. Correct. So we're talking about, and, of course, if you're under the private fund manager rules, there are exceptions, <coughs> you probably would be filing as an exempt reporting advisor. But in this instance where we have the mid-sized advisor, presumably they're managing at least one separately managed account as well as other private funds so that they don't have the private fund ex exemption available to them, and they have AUM between 25 and 100. And they're in a state that says, in order to register with our state, you need at least five clients. Correct. So they only have one, namely the fund that they are managing but they have $35 million of AUM. So now under this new revision, before they would not have to register with the state because they had below the minimum number of clients. Correct. But now, because they have more than 25 and they are not eligible for state registration, the FCC wants them to file an SEC form. Correct, to register with the, with the FCC. Now this is going to be... A, <clears throat> a rude awakening for a number of investment managers out there who think that <clears throat> because they're exempt from state registration um, and they're considered a mid-sized advisor for federal that they're not required to file with the SEC. So again, a trap for the unwary. Um, we have to get the word out to all of our various constituencies that um, the rule has changed with respect to mid-sized advisors. What about um, Chief Compliance Officer compensation? Uh, back when the Chief Compliance Officer rule was adopted, it was common practice for the board of the registered mutual fund to say, given the increased duties that the Chief Compliance Officer was undertaking on behalf of the board of the fund, that the fund was going to pay a portion of the compensation of that um, Chief Compliance Officer, in addition to the compensation the Chief Compliance Officer received from the um, the investment advisory firm itself. So what happens with that? So under the new form ADB, item 1J2 now requires advisors to disclose whether a CCO is employed or compensated by anyone other than the advisor or a person related to the advisor or an investment company that the advisor advises. Um, so if that applies, then the advisor is required to disclose the name of the entity or the person paying the CCO and that entity's IRS employer identification number. So in the instance that you were referring to, Greg, where it's the advisor, I'm sorry, the investment company that's also paying a portion of the CCO's compensation, that would not have to be disclosed under item 1J. Because it's a person other than the advisor or related person or investment company that Correct. the advisor advises. Right. Okay. So what's a classic circumstance where the advisor, or I'm sorry, where this would have to be disclosed? Because clearly if you have an advisory firm that's um, its business is outsourced chief compliance officers, so therefore the CCO is providing compliance services to a number of different advisory firms, that's not within the ambit of the rule as well. Correct. So we're really focused on a circumstance where the CCO is receiving compensation, the proverbial whisper behind the ear from the CEO or from some other person or perhaps from a broker-dealer or I don't know how that would happen. That would seem to be a real issue, but I guess right. it probably is happening. And now they want disclosure um, if they're receiving compensation from someone other than the advisor. 
Now, if they're employed by anyone other than the advisor or a related person, that would be a dual employment circumstance, and I assume would cover if the CCO were employed, for example, by a registered broker-dealer, since that's not considered to be an accepted uh, or an exception here, unless the broker-dealer is also a related person. Correct. Okay. Correct. Um, the FCC also clarified in new item um, 5D that pooled investment vehicles are not limited to just, quote-unquote, private funds, which private funds are 3C1 and 3C7 hedge and private equity-type funds. It also includes uh, 3C5 and 3C11 funds that are pooled but were otherwise not potentially investing in securities or deemed to be private funds under 3C1 or 3C7. 3C5 are like mortgage companies or real estate companies. 3C11 deals with tax-exempt pension plan-type pooled investment vehicles. Um, Uses are definitively now considered to be a pooled investment vehicle, and they get reported in the column as a pooled investment vehicle. There was some question before that if a U.S. manager was managing an offshore or foreign usage, whether or not that was considered to be a pooled investment vehicle, the answer now is yes, it is. So we have some clarifying amendments, uh, which are always useful, makes it easier to fill out the form. Um, There's also some further clarification with respect to affiliations. Kathy, what happened with item 7A? Sure. So the staff um, indicated that in instances where a private fund client has significant ownership in an operating company and persons associated with the advisor might participate in the management of the issuer, the staff will not recommend enforcement if the advisor does not treat the operating company that the private fund controls as an affiliate for purposes of item 7 and item 10 of part 2A. All right. So translated, if you have a private equity fund, and obviously you have a registered investment advisor that's managing the private equity fund and the general partner affiliate of that, and the private equity fund has significant positions in the operating companies that it owns, significant to the point where the fund is an affiliate of the advisor and then the portfolio positions inside the fund are also viewed as an affiliate of the advisor. Right there was always a question whether or not those portfolio companies needed to be disclosed. The answer now is a definitive. No. They do not need to be disclosed. The staff would not enforce, uh, recommend enforcement action if those positions are not reported. Now, there is an exception. If the firm has a business relationship with an operating company unrelated to the fund's investment that create a conflict of interest, now that needs to be disclosed. So... What that business relationship may be is undefined in the FAQs, but anything that is creating a conflict of interest, you need to have pause and evaluate whether or not that conflict of interest is enough or potential conflict of interest is enough where you probably want to disclose that on Form ADV. Um, The other... uh, point of interest coming out of the new form ADV is item 8, item 8H and item 8I. Cassie, what happened there? Item 8H now requires an advisor to report whether it compensates employees or non-employees for bringing in clients. 
So for employees, uh, an advisor would have to answer that affirmatively if the employee receives a bonus that's in some way um, based on bringing clients into the firm. The staff did clarify that if the bonus is based on the firm's profitability, that doesn't necessarily require an affirmative answer to that item. So, and of course, not to be uh, undone, they also did it from the obverse that says the advisor has to report whether the advisor or any related person, including employees, directly or indirectly, receives compensation. So it's not just the payment, it's also the receipt of compensation that's tied to client referrals. Now, um, this is one of those that on the surface is fairly innocuous, but you need to peel back a couple of layers of the onion and what the implications of this are for advisors, especially those who will uh, be required to use the new form ADV effective January 1 during that first quarter reporting period. So who is the client of the firm? If a, if a manager is managing private funds, the client is the hedge fund or private equity fund or separately managed account. The client is not an investor in a fund. That's pretty clear. That's the uh, outgrowth of the Goldstein decision from several years ago in the D.C. Circuit. Uh, the client of the firm, of the advisory firm, is the fund. So if a firm is paying a person who is an employee to raise assets for the fund and they're getting straight salary, that's not a reportable item. There's Correct. no issue here. On the other hand, if the firm is paying a bonus to that employee for raising investors in the fund and just in the fund, that would appear not to be captured under these rules with two very important caveats. The first is if the employee is receiving variable compensation for selling a security, even though it's a security that's managed by the advisor, uh, other jurisprudence and positions of the staff and the commission are that that person needs to be a registered rep of a broker-dealer because they're selling a security for a salesman's stake, a commission. So while there's no reporting rule here, there's a whole other legal regimen that needs to be respected and you need to understand what's going on. The other important caveat is oftentimes an investment manager who has separately managed accounts, private funds, and registered funds will have internal wholesalers and salespeople who it compensates. Why? Because they want to get new clients for the firm. So if they're paying them bonuses for selling uh, advisory services, and here's where it's important to distinguish, to distinguish between the sale of a service and the sale of a product. If they're selling services, advisory services, and they receive a bonus for selling advisory services for separately managed account, it has to be disclosed, but there's nothing wrong with it as long as you meet the solicitor's rules. You don't need to be a licensed broker-dealer for that. On the other hand, if the, the advisor is paying variable compensation for someone to raise assets by selling securities, namely interest in a fund that the advisor manages, it doesn't have to be disclosed here, but that person needs to be a licensed re registered representative of a broker-dealer. 
and the compensation needs to be paid to the broker-dealer, who then takes whatever it takes and for its supervision and control processes and then pays out whatever it pays out as the share to the employee who's now dual-hatted between the advisor and the, the brokerage firm. Here's the rough. Many managers will have a compensation program that attempts to make it indistinguishable whether the salesman is raising separately managed account assets or fund assets. Why? Because they don't want to give an incentive, the wrong incentive, to an employee to sell the service over the product or vice versa. And so it simply says, we'll compensate you uh, for raising assets for the firm. Unfortunately, that type of plan is the type of plan that now gets the manager in hot water. And this is why this needs to be focused on between now and the end of the year. Because fast forward to February of 2018, and you're filling, your chief compliance officer is filling out the form. And the question asks, do you compensate employees for bringing in clients? And if you do, do you pay them a bonus that's tied to the assets under management that are brought in? And you know that if you answer yes to that, because you compensate people for bringing in advisory clients, they will most likely, when the SEC comes in, look for this. It's the new issue. And again, it's perfectly okay and legitimate if what you're doing is raising clients in separately managed accounts for the advisor. But if that plan also has a feature in it that says, oh, by the way, we're going to compensate you the same way if you raise assets in a fund, well, that's when you better be sure that your registered that your persons are registered reps of a broker dealer and the proper selling arrangements are in place and compensation arrangements are in place with the broker dealer. If you wait until the first quarter of 2018 to address this issue, how do you answer the question? Because at the time that you answer are filing the form for the stub period between January and when you finally get around to making the change, you will have compensated someone under a plan for bringing in assets at a time when they are not a licensed broker-dealer. Now, uh, obviously there are exceptions to the broker-dealer rule. There are still whatever's left of the Paul Anka exception. Someone may be able to fit under a crowdfunding exception or perhaps even under the uh, capital markets broker-dealer exception. But in any of those instances, Something else has to happen. There has to be a finding that a person is just a finder. There has to be a determination and a licensure uh, action with respect to the uh, capital markets broker-dealer. And if someone is going to become a registered rep of a broker-dealer, you know, under the Blackstreet or Aniri decisions, they know what those rules mean and how they're supposed to operate. So um, an innocuous question with far-reaching implications you cannot wait to clean up compensation arrangements to the first of the year. They have to be in place for the reporting period, which would be January 1 through um, December 31, 2018. If you happen to be one of those unlucky folk who are on a September 30 year, year end, that gives you four days to fix your compliance program so that when you answer this question, you're answering it in real time and saying, I do not have a compensation arrangement that is inappropriate. The other thing to keep in mind here is 
you can't have a wink and a nod approach to this. An email, an understanding, an assurance that the employee will receive a quote-unquote discretionary bonus that happens to be formulaic does not work. A discretionary bonus is just that, a discretionary bonus, and it cannot be tied formulaically to the amount of sales that someone makes with respect to the securities in a fund. Does the issuer's exception still apply? Absolutely, as long as you can fit within the four corners of it. But recent enforcement actions and other statements by the SEC have made it clear that they view that variable compensation paid by an advisor to its employees for raising assets in a fund is the sale of a security properly done by someone who is a licensed representative of a broker-dealer. Okay, enough said on that one. Let's move on to cybersecurity. And here we actually have an interesting um, dichotomy. We're on slide four for those following along. Um, both Colorado and New York have adopted a cybersecurity regimen. Cassie, tell us about them. So the two are similar in that they cover, um, they're trying to have advisors and others that are <clears throat> that are that the regulations apply to kind of assess the risk associated with their cybersecurity and their IT um, and whether there are any vulnerabilities in those systems. The way that it's done for Colorado and New York is quite a bit um, different. So Colorado's regulation, which is effective July 15th, so it's currently in effect of 2017, applies to investment advisors and broker-dealers. Um, it requires advisors to conduct an annual risk assessment of their cybersecurity practices and to establish written plans that are reasonably designed to ensure cybersecurity of um, confidential personal information. Now, the regulation defines confidential personal information relatively narrowly. It's uh, social security numbers, driver's license, and other identification card numbers, account numbers, credit debit card numbers, um, and other digital or electronic signatures, such as usernames, passwords, things of that nature. But uh, Colorado is specific that it applies to broker-dealers and investment advisors. Correct. No question about it. Correct. And the effective date was July of this year. Right. Okay. Um, tell us about New York. So New York's regulation is much broader in some aspects than the Colorado regulation. So the New New York's regulation went into effect on August 28th of this year. For most of the provisions, other provisions um, go into effect as late as 2019. So the New York regulation applies to all institutions that are authorized by New York's Department of Financial Services to operate within the state of New York. So who is that? Who does that include? That applies to many banks, consumer financial service companies, insurance entities, and some insurance professionals. Now, it does not apply to funds and investment advisors. But to the extent that those funds are engaged in consumer lending. Correct. Or otherwise um, dealing, for example, with variable annuity contracts issued by insurance companies, uh, or they have persons who are cross-registered as insurance salesmen, as you often will have in brokerage houses, then they will be covered. Correct. And what's the impact under the New York cybersecurity regulation? So it requires 
Well, for one, the information that's protected under New York's regulation is more broad than what's covered under Colorado. Colorado with very specific social security numbers, electronic signatures, things of that nature. New York's regulation covers non-public information, which consists of business-related information, um, basically anything that the unauthorized disclosure or destruction of would materially impact um, a covered entity. It also covers certain personal information and certain health-related information. Now, the requirements of New York's regulation, again, are a bit more burdensome than Colorado's. It requires a periodic risk assessment that has to be documented, um, which can be a bit of a double-edged sword because the documentation of the risk assessment will then play into ensuring compliance and possibly enforcement with the regulation later on. It also requires um, a vulnerability assessment every two years. Now, compliance with the risk assessment is going to be required in this March of this upcoming year, 2018. <clears throat> the regulation also requires a cybersecurity program that's tailored to its risk assessment. It requires written policies and procedures to be approved by senior management. It requires um, all institutions to have to, to designate a chief information security officer with various duties, um, such as overseeing and implementing the cybersecurity program, enforcing the program, providing an annual report to the board, um, and various other functions. Now, the staff did clarify, um, I'm sorry, New York did clarify that the chief information security officer's functions can be outsourced to a third party or an affiliate, but the responsibility for complying with these regulations, the regulations will fall on the covered entity, not on this third party that it's outsourcing to. So the crucial, well, that's always the case with outsourcing. Right. If you're outsourcing a CIO function or a CCO function uh, or a FinOp function in the context of a broker-dealer, even though that service provider is required to discharge their duties appropriately, the principal, the entity that hired them, is still always responsible. But that's the case under, you know, normal master-servant rules under right. employment laws. Anyway, the, the master is always responsible for what his servant does. Um, so... Uh, no one really should be surprised that they're saying that you can't duck this by saying, uh, it's their oh, fault. I hired somebody, it's their fault, right. obviously. Yeah, that, that may work when you're three years old. <laughs> As a father of four children can attest, uh, but it doesn't necessarily happen here. You can't deflect the responsibility. Um, interesting under cybersecurity, and you may have uh, heard about, the SEC's data breach that happened on um, actually earlier this year, but it only came to light most recently. And as a result, the SEC, if you recall, has been banging the drum for many months now that cybersecurity is a huge risk, that the institutions need to step up to the plate, spend the money, defend their data, and make sure that uh, there are no data breaches, and if we find that you don't have a good cybersecurity policy or program, then we're going to write an exception report and, you know, bring down the hounds of God. So here we have the announcement uh, on Wednesday of last week that the SEC suffered a data breach and that that data breach was uh, not insignificant with a rather uh, pervasive data breach. So, of course, Everybody in the industry and industry trade groups have been lining up now to, to wag their fingers back at the regulators saying, see, it isn't so easy, and perhaps we need a delay in the rules. No one wants to see their data breached 
but the draconian consequences of, of not having a policy or procedure or whatever in place are already felt by the organization when they lose the goodwill of their customer. What they don't need is the piling on of a regulator, and maybe what we need is to delay in some of these rules so that the industry can comply. Rightly or wrongly, you know, when the arbiter, such as uh, the SEC, runs into an issue, uh, it's clear that the SEC has to give some quarter to the industry for um, not being able to keep their own house defended. Um, this is a pervasive problem and is going to get worse as um, encryption technology becomes and breaking of encryption becomes more commonplace. As a result, the industry needs to consider investing even more than they were already planning to invest to protect themselves. You look, need to look no forward than the recent breach of the credit reporting agency and how pervasive that risk has been uh, to the organization, which, of course, raises the question, is there another solution? One solution being bandied about is the decentralization of data, so that even though you may have a breach of one or two or even three nodes of data, you don't bring down the whole house because the data is decentralized. So it's sort of uh, the old, you play chess, the pawn gambit. I'll willingly give you, you know, these small pieces of data if you can get them, but you're not going to bring down the whole house. And in order to do that, you probably need to use some form of distributed ledger technology like blockchain in order to accomplish that, which we'll talk about a little bit later on, some of the developments in blockchain and in the securities as well as cryptocurrency space. Um, very interesting developments, but it also raises the... Uh, the comeuppance that is associated with enforcement. <laughs> you have to make sure that uh, things are square in your own house. FINRA licensing requirements. We've talked a little bit about broker-dealers and how the SEC has staked out the position that certain persons who receive a salesman's stake in the sale of a security need to be licensed with a registered broker-dealer. And now this past summer, the SEC approved a proposal by FINRA to revamp the licensing process. So, Cassie, what did they do there? So, the proposed rule requires that any person that's engaged in invest investment banking or securities business of a member must register with FINRA as a rep or a principal in each category of registration that's appropriate for their, their function or their responsibilities. So, they rolled out two new exams. The first is for anyone who wants to register as a representative, and they have to pass what's called the Securities Industry Essential Exam, or the SIE. That is a general knowledge exam. Um, it covers things such as knowledge of capital markets, understanding products and their risk, understanding trader, trading, customer accounts, and prohibited activities, and an overview of regulatory framework. So that's sort of a baseline. You can't walk through the door and assume a position other than a clerical position without having to take an SIE. Correct. And um, it used to be, in order to be sponsored for, uh, I'm sorry, in order to take a FINRA exam, you need to be sponsored by a broker-dealer. They changed that too, right, Cassie? They did. So now anyone is eligible to take the SIE, regardless of whether or not they have a sponsor. 
But the SIE doesn't authorize you to do anything. Right. It's just the basic in through the door, sort of like the bar exam or the CPA exam for uh, lawyers and accountants, respectively. The SIE is sort of that base level examination, but then what has to happen? So on top of the SIE, um, anyone who wants to register also has to take a specialized knowledge exam. So that exam is associated with the representative's particular job function. So a general securities rep, a, a commodity trader, a futures trader, a principal, a FinOp, whatever they may be, will be the specialized exams on top of the SIE. Right. So um, we haven't yet seen the list of new exams out of FINRA. There is no announced effective date for this change because FINRA needs to go through all of its rulemaking processes. And we have absolutely no knowledge at this point about grandfather rules, but it would seem to me that um, that's a logical extension of this. Someone who's been in the securities industry for you know, 15, 20, 25, 30 years should probably be grandfathered as a matter of course, although the SEC's approval of this revamp of the examination structure does not mention any of those things. Correct. It does deal with the continuing education requirements, and what does it say there? Right. So all registered persons must satisfy continuing education requirements, and they are not allowed to register with another category, in another category, with a member or register with a new member until those requirements are met. So, again, we this is a shot across the bow. Uh, it's an information point at this point. There's no actionable item here yet. These were amendments that were adopted to the NASD and the NYSE rulebook as part of the move to the new FINRA handbook, and it does restructure the representative level qualification exams, but the particulars have been yet to be filled out. Um, stay tuned. Would not be surprising if certain other agencies of either state or federal government adopt the SIE as sort of a baseline to participate in the industry. Okay, let's talk about CCOs. Uh, CCOs have gone through an evolution from being someone who is the equivalent of the person who does the ironing and washes the dishes to someone who has become instrumental in every firm since in order for a project, process, product to operate or come to market, they need to make sure that it doesn't trip any of the compliance obligations and the person who has to rule on those is the CCO. But the CCO, because of the fact that he or she sits at the crossroads of product development, operations, compliance, and enforcement, has also uh, been in the hot seat with the SEC. So tell us about two recent actions that we've seen. So the first is um, Craig Scott Capital, which is a registered broker-dealer. Um, the takeaway from this is that the arbitrator in this case said that a CCO does not have the obligation to become a self-sacrificing whistleblower, basically. Um, in that case, a client filed a claim against the broker-dealer alleging a number of fraudulent activities and that it breached its um, fiduciary duties. So the CCO actually brought several cases to firm management's attention with the, with the suspicion of fraud. Um, the CCO later left the firm under very hostile circumstances and couldn't access any of the firm's records or documents, which is normal. 
Now, the FINRA reporting rules require a brokerage firm to notify FINRA whenever it discovers misconduct that could reasonably, that it could foresee as causing widespread or potential widespread impact to the firm. So here there was no evidence that the firm had designated this CCO as the party responsible for making that determination. Um, and they ultimately found that the CCO didn't violate any laws by reporting the information internally and not bringing the information to FINRA directly. But there's a key point here, and that is under the federal, there is a federal reporting rule, right? And the report was not made. Correct. But in this instance, uh, FINRA did not find any evidence that the firm had designated the CCO. Correct. As the person responsible for reporting violations to FINRA. Correct. Now, normally that role would devolve on the CCO because, again, it's like taking out the trash, doing the ironing, or washing the dishes. It's one of those things that the other senior officers in firm management really don't want to get involved with. Um, most of them would prefer not talking to FINRA if they could avoid it. Uh, nothing against FINRA. It's just that, you know, it's difficult sometimes when you're in a managerial position to manage the needs of the business while at the same time worrying about how the regulator is going to deal with this. That's why you hire a CCO, to help you worry and take that worry off your shoulders. But it would be unusual for a person other than the CCO to be uh, the person designated to make these types of reports. Right. You would think under normal circumstances the CCO would at least have a say in how the report is prepared and when it gets filed and if a certain infraction rises to the level of requiring reporting. In this case, there was no evidence that the CCO had been so designated. So I would strongly recommend that our readers, or listeners rather, uh, read their compliance manuals, and in the case of broker-dealers, their written supervisory procedures, and see if the CCO has been designated as a reporting person on behalf of the firm in a, in a FINRA context, or as the person who makes a report if one is required to FinCEN, the SEC, the CFTC, or whatever other regulated, regulatory agency may be involved. If that CCO has that responsibility and it's so documented, then uh, obviously the out that was available in the Craig Scott Capital case is not available in your instance. Correct. But having said that, uh, the, the other takeaway from this case is that the CCO was not required to be, what was the term of art you used? A self-sacrificing whistleblower. So, uh, that's a very important consideration in defining the role of a CCO and what they are expected to do in these contexts. What happened in strategic consulting? So, strategic consulting advisors um, provides compliance services and CCO services. So they provided these services to two registered investment advisors that were under common control. One of the two advisors was filing its annual amendment to its form ADV, and the ADV was intending to reflect a merger between these two advisors. Um, the combined AUM for these firms were overstated by over $119 million, and the client accounts were overstated by at least 1,000 accounts. So the gist of what happened is that while preparing this amendment, the CCO received an email from the CIO um, giving an estimate of the AUM and the number of client accounts. Um, he is estimate. 
estimate. So the email from the CIO had language to the effect of, I believe the AUM was as follows on December 31st. It should be in the range of fill in the blank. Um, the CCO then adopted these estimates without really taking any steps to ascertain their accuracy. Um, the CCO also listed the CIO as the signatory certifying the ADV without confirming with the CIO. So the AUM was misstated, the, amount, the number of client accounts was misstated, and there was a misstatement in terms of the CIO certifying that the contents of the amendment was accurate, which never happened. So this is actually a very interesting case because, first of all, the CCO was fined, what was it, $30,000 for and civil penalties for um, their dereliction of duty here. And they were then suspended from certain activities for 12 months. Right. So I'm assuming the suspension was worth a lot more to the CCO than the $30,000, but nevertheless, um, important consequences to what happened here. But this, this also points out two areas of particular concern, um, almost to the point of being picadillos, uh, and that is the number of client accounts and the assets under management. One would think these are pretty mundane numbers. You go to the account master file, you go to the custodian report or the administrator's report or whatever you use at your firm to keep track of these things. You take the number off it and you report it. Um, however, as you could see in this instance, the firm was off by a $100 million amount and a 1,000 accounts. Now, if this is a $200 million firm, a $100 million error is pretty significant. If this is a $30 billion firm, a $100 million error is probably, you know, not significant, wouldn't even rise to the level of materiality. Uh, although $100 million is still $100 million is still $100 million, and <laughs> certainly more than I make. Uh, but, but the reality is that what was previously just a disclosure document, namely Form ADV, has morphed into an enforcement document, a disciplinary document, a almost a gotcha document. And CCOs, being the ones usually charged with preparing and filing these reports, are now rightfully concerned. And what you're going to see is those CCOs demanding verification of the data that is being presented in these forms as a result of these decisions, just as a matter of self-preservation. Now, whether or not that makes sense is a completely different question. Whether or not, you know, an understatement or overstatement of AUM uh, should, you know, create such draconian circumstances is, um, you know, an important question. Now, taking the other side of that, remember the SEC's jurisdiction over investment managers only starts at $100 million. And for exclusively private fund managers, only starts at $150 million under management. So, in some respects, this is a jurisdictional question, whether or not the SEC even has jurisdiction, and therefore the proper reporting of these amounts is very, very, very important because it is a toggle between whether or not the SEC has jurisdiction or not. So um, the, the point is the 
whoever is filling out Form ADV needs to take the reporting of this information very seriously. This is not a marketing document where someone can say, oh, we're about. It has to be fairly precise as of the date of the report. And uh, the manager who is charged with signing it is making an affirmation under penalties of perjury that it's accurate. And again, people need to keep that in mind when they um, execute these reports and present this information. So the takeaway is that CCOs are not necessarily in the crosshairs, but they definitely are put on notice that they cannot accept without questioning information from other management officers of the firm, especially if it is out of kilter with what they would have expected at that time. Kathy, what's happening with um, SEC versus Momentum Investment Partners? So this was a failure to disclose case. So Momentum Investment Partners is a registered investment advisor. They advised 20 individual accounts from eight different families of investors, and they invested in ETFs, or exchange-traded funds. So this advisor decided to create new mutual funds that mirrored the investment strategy of the ETFs that their clients were already invested in and didn't disclose the material conflict of interest involved with the investments the advisor made in these new funds that it, was, that it already created and was managing. So the advisor did not disclose that it was moving the clients $11 million in assets into these new mutual funds, and it didn't disclose that moving those assets would increase their total advisory fees without changing the investment strategy that they were um, implementing and without changing any of the advisory services that these clients were provided. Uh, the advisor also didn't provide any notice to the clients before moving their funds into these new mutual funds, and they didn't provide any notice that they would pay additional management fees to the advisor for, you know, no change in services at all. And clients ended up paying an additional $111,000 in additional fees. So, no notice, increased fees, no additional services being provided. No change in investment strategy. No change in investment strategy, and assets moved from individual accounts into a registered product. Correct. Obviously, a recipe for disaster as far as this advisor was concerned. Um, the increase in fees coupled with no additional service, coupled with no change in strategy, coupled with no notice, it's just a, a damning set of facts. Um, it would have been interesting to see if the transaction had um, gone the other way, uh, you know, the classic example of a long-only manager managing in a particular style who decides to set up a private fund, manages in the exact same style, but then charges 2 and 20 fees, um, which was all the heyday back in the early 2000s, very little of that happens now because the investing public is much more attuned to the fees that are paid and they won't uh, agree to something like that. But one of the questions as uh, service providers to the, that particular industry, the hedge fund industry, we always ask is what's the secret sauce? Why would an investor be willing to pay you 2 and 20 when they can simply invest in your mutual fund? And if somebody says, well, it's just a private fund and that's what we charge, then usually we don't 
take those clients because of precisely this reason that you you know you have to give investors the best deal that's available. You can earn a fair fee for your services, but you're still entitled to the best deal. So we see that Massachusetts is also um, getting on the bandwagon here. What are they doing? So Massachusetts um, is doing a bit of an inquiry and investigation that was sparked by a New York Times article written by a Yale law professor and a Yale University CIO. So this New York Times article alleged that brokers routinely take kickbacks that are referred to as rebates for routing orders to a particular exchange, which creates trade losses amounting to billions of dollars a year, um, says the New York Times article. So obviously this is problematic because brokers have an obligation to seek best execution for their clients and to execute trades that are most favorable to their clients under the circumstances. Um, the article also stated that the investors exchange is one of the only exchanges that does not pay rebates to brokers, but it only accounts for about 3% of the market share. Um, interestingly enough, a few months ago, sometime last year, Greg and I attended a networking event um, where the president of the Investors Exchange spoke um, at the event, so that was pretty interesting. Uh, Massachusetts sent inquiries to several large broker-dealers, including Charles Schwab, E-Trade Securities, Edward Jones, Fidelity Brokerage Services, Morgan Stanley, Scott Trade, and TD Ameritrade. And then were some other developments. Of course, we had the um, the uh, Salmon decision from the Supreme Court back in 2016 that resolved a very narrow issue that was presented by Dirks that uh, the gift of confidential information to a trading relative uh, does trigger the breach of fiduciary duty under Dirks, and therefore the tippee who trades on that information uh, is liable under the federal securities laws for criminal violation. But in August of 2017, the SEC brought its largest insider trading case since 2015 using its data analysis tools. This is the Revis case. And basically, Revis is against seven individuals, a former IT employee of a large bank, who misused his access to bank computer systems to tip four individuals who traded on the information. This was with respect to 30 corporate deals between October 14th and April of 2017. And Revis tipped his girlfriend's father, who also traded on the information. And I have to tell you, if you're using code words or special websites where your emails evaporate when the uh, information is sent, um, that should be telling you you're doing something wrong. You would think so. You would think so. You know, <laughs> if you have to cover your tracks that well, then obviously there's something else going on. Um, another issue happened just yesterday. BlackRock, uh, one of the world's largest asset managers, reported that one of its executives had made a $2,700 donation to the campaign of uh, John Kasich when he was running for president. The problem is that BlackRock manages billions of dollars for the state of Ohio. And under the SEC's pay-to-play rules, the impact of that is that $2,700 contribution could likely cost BlackRock $37 million in fees. Because under the SEC's look-back rule, you can still work, you just can't be paid if you violate the pay-to-play rules. Now, BlackRock has asked for an exception. The executive got the money back from the campaign, 
everybody is, you know, begging for mercy here. We'll see what the SEC ultimately says. They have not yet responded to BlackRock's request. This was reported in the news uh, as a result of a submission that BlackRock had made um, as part of its public reporting company requirements. And then a short commercial. Uh, the program that we will do next month in October is going to focus on the <clears throat> treatment of initial coin offerings and simple agreements for future tokens from the point of view of the investor. So hedge funds, private equity funds, individuals, institutions have all been hearing a lot in the news about Bitcoin. We're not focusing on Bitcoin. We're focusing on all the other coins that are issued uh, under the new cryptocurrency uh, protocols that are all driven by blockchain. There's nothing wrong with blockchain. It's just a record-keeping device on a distributed basis. Bitcoin is one manifestation of that. The other coins that are being issued may be securities, may not be securities, may be commodity futures contracts. Well, whatever they are, investors have been very interested in them, and as a result, it's a proper topic for our discussion. As a short preview to that, the SEC issued the DAO, uh, the Decentralized Autonomous Organization Report. Um, I'm sure there was a little bit of wordplay there with the DAO and, uh, you know, the publisher of the Wall Street Journal being the alternative spelling of that word. But uh, they raised uh, a $150 million between April and May of 2016. The tokens granted the token holders certain voting and ownership rights. The interesting thing is the DAO was not a legal entity, and they tried to make take the position that because there was no corporation or other entity that there couldn't be an issue or in that per se the tokens were not securities. Of course, the SEC dismissed that argument in a nanosecond, um, you know, unincorporated Groups of unincorporated persons can be an issuer. They essentially become an unincorporated enterprise for securities law, corporate law, and tax purposes, which make them into a corporation. And because of the, um, the uh, features of these tokens and how they match up against the Howey test, which is the old and hoary test for whether or not an investment contract is a security, the SEC determined that the DAO tokens were, in fact, securities. And the implications of that under Reg D, under Reg A+, are significant. The implications of the offer, the subsequent sale, are these restricted securities or not? To whom can the offer be made? Does it have to be under the Jobs Act, Section 506C? And tax. Are the proceeds of this offering income? And if so, has there been proper disclosure of the fact that 35% will go to Uncle Sam, 10% will go to the state, if that's the tax rate or whatever the tax rate of the state is, and there may even be sales tax. Because as you know, when you buy a piece of software over the Internet, it doesn't matter where it came from. If your state imposes an, a sales tax on software, you have to pay it when received. So. Use of proceeds, 52% going to the various governmental agencies as taxes. Again, something that's material that would have to be disclosed if it's a security. So a lot depends on that initial determination. We will explore those issues in detail in the next program in October. Thank you for your attention. This is Greg Novak and Cassie Justy signing off.